from Rixie. This is Frameform. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Frameform. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we got a cool episode for y'all today. It's actually a revisit of what we started off early in the season. We did warehouse films. And then we got together and said, tell us what you want to see next, water or desert. Uh, Y'all picked water, but guess what? We're going to do desert as well, and that is what we are doing here today. But first, why don't we talk about what we're doing these days, watching-wise. Jen, Claire, what are you watching these days? Oh, I saw my first movie in theaters in a (gasps) very, very long time. Congratulations. Amazing. It was The Green Knight by David Lowry. And oh my God, I'm obsessed. Everyone is obsessed right now. Mind-boggling. Just worth the $20. Worth the $20 or uh, 10 if you go in a matinee screening. Uh, You would. I love you, you, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I mean, it's just... um, I mean, some of you might have read the story. I mean, I wasn't an English major in college, so I didn't. But I actually don't necessarily think you need an understanding of the the Green Knight uh, poem to really enjoy what Lowry is trying to do in the film. I think that it's, well, first of all, stunningly beautiful. I mean, yeah. literally every frame is a painting. Dev Patel is just like, oh, I love Dev Patel. Yeah, he's just like so sad throughout the entire movie and it's super compelling. (laughs) And um, yep, has the best talking fox since since Andy Christ. Okay. And since Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yes. We're talking about an actual animal. Okay. Oh, yes. An actual, yeah, actual real life animal. Yeah. And I think it just has a lot to say about myth making and destiny. How exactly does one fulfill a destiny and who do you fulfill it for? So I I loved it. I hope it stays in theaters. I definitely want to see it. My friend, um, shout out to Brent, texted me last week and was telling me about it. And it was also his first film that he saw in the theater since theaters are reopening again. So um, now I have two people telling me that I got to go see it. So this is definitely next on my list. <laughs> Jen, have you been seeing anything new or rewatching anything lighthearted or whatever? <laughs> Even though it's a really busy time, I am still finding time to, you know, watch things while I'm maybe soaking my feet or, you know, making dinner. Like, so I'm kind of watching more short form, passive watching sort of things. Um, and I've been really deep diving on, um, two YouTube channels. One's called World According to Briggs, and the other one is mm. just Nick Johnson. And these guys do really comprehensive videos, not just about the United States. They do more international lists as well, but I'm particularly interested in, like, studying different regions. And they, they'll do it, like, to, like by topic or, you know, 10 reasons not to move to this state or to move to that state or, huh. you know, best best mountain towns to retire <laughs> and just Ooh. a lot of, like, really specific lists. So 
Yeah, I'm enjoying kind of learning because so many other, it's one thing to just learn about it for travel or you know, yeah. information purposes, but it's it's interesting because it reveals sort of like different culture and like you learn about different challenges of living in certain places and things that you might not know unless you were, you know, heavily researching and it's kind of put in this palatable format and categorized in a way where you're like, oh, these places are totally across the continent, yeah. but culturally are pretty similar. So yeah, a lot of passive watching, but like nonfiction category stuff for me lately. No, that sounds <laughs> awesome. Let's definitely link those channels in the show notes. I want to take a look at them as well. But speaking of, you know, linking everything in this episode in the show notes, let's go into our topic for today, which is, like I said, in the very top of our starting was talking about deserts. So, you know, water, desert, as Claire once said it, being parched or being uh, totally fulfilled or quenched. But honestly, I think both of these locations can actually give you fulfillment in some kind of way. Now, looking at deserts, there's a lot of like symbolism and significance, and we see that in movies, you know, looking at greed in 1924, when he escapes the city and goes basically stranding himself in Death Valley. We have the iconic Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, thinking of any kind of Western, including Star Wars, films like Holy Mountain, or even in television shows. For instance, I just finished The Sopranos, and there's a whole scene where uh, Tony goes to the desert to find some kind of truth in the making. And then, of course, we can't forget about Mad Max and all of those kind of things that happen out there. (laughs) Well, while we're talking about TV dads finding themselves, lest we forget Homer Simpson as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting how the desert has, you know, is kind of this timeless, symbolic space that brings so much to it by way of, you know, a narrative rich environment that has, you know, visually different things going on and texture and sounds. And I think that's obviously going to come up as we discuss the specific films today. But from a symbolic perspective, it really does represent this space of discovery or invites an existentialist lens when we're looking at these things. So I'm really excited for the films that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, or today, if you're listening during the day, um, you know, the films that we're going to talk about in this episode because they all really, I think, hit on all those different levels and do it in such a great way that's specific to the medium that we really focus on in this show. Yeah, and in contrast to something like the water episode, I think that there still is a general lack of unfamiliarity, at least I'm you know, speaking from mostly a North American perspective, of the desert environment itself. Like with the water, there's, I mean, so many cities that have sprung up around water and so many places that people inhabit that's close to water. Whereas the desert, that's something that you really do have to, in the, at least in this case, go, go out of your way to get to, in a way. So the desert is, as, as you said, Jen, like very, very much a, a place of discovery. And for many people, it gets such a malleable location that it can be a stand-in for anything. Like it can be a stand-in for some place that is not of this world. It can be, I hesitate saying blank slate because the there's so much in like desert environments and so much in desert, you know, 
so much in the biome of the desert that's going on all the time, but it's a place where it's really a place where you can truly escape, where you can truly be disconnected from the world and really at the mercy of elements as well. I find it funny in a way how this kind of location just started popping up in dance films. As we've said in the where for the warehouse episode, our first one of the season, you know, we were thinking about how the warehouse kind of creates like a limbo, you know, it's a location that you don't really know and that is exactly what's being introduced here in the desert, but you're able to do things at a much larger scale. With that said, we're introducing a lot of drones, bird's eye angles, and then also playing around a little bit more like you said, with texture. So going more at a worm's eye angle and getting really down to the ground and actually interacting with the space rather than, you know, with a warehouse. As I said in that episode, not a lot of interaction with the actual warehouse itself. You know, it's just there as a backdrop. Where in this space, we're experiencing sand on the body and experiencing the wind through the hair or just through the fabric that or lack of fabric that people are wearing (laughs) in this particular instance. Yeah, speaking of the costuming, I have to say, especially for Clouded, where the dancers were in all black head to toe in the desert, like that is that is a feat. And to anyone that has had to be on a hot set before or just caught off guard and in life and not ready for the elements, it can be really difficult to just be, let alone perform a dance for a video camera, you know, and be at that peak level. So kudos to the crew and the dancers. And I was actually rewatching Clouded earlier today with my husband and he was joking. He's like, where did they park? Because there's so many drone shots that you're in this expansive space. And I think all the films we chose today, you know, they use the desert really creatively. They have an intricate soundscape that is just more dynamic than looking at kind of a barren space and having this, you know, while a meditative quiet space might be nice, these films all have that variety. And I noticed that they all have a different element or a prop or a costume thing that adds some extra layer of symbolism as well. But we will talk about that when we actually dive into the films. Before we do, I think it's important that we acknowledge that by, you know, as always, by picking three films, we have left out so many. Oh, so many. Oh, yeah. Why don't we talk about kind of how we chose these films and maybe if there were any others that, you know, we didn't get to mention today, but we would like to mention. Looking at these three films as a whole, this is a great demonstration of like inner struggle, which is something that, as we said today, just how... When people go to the desert, they're kind of searching for something and trying to find answers. And that is a struggle with Clouded. I mean, just the opening segment of dialogue that is given through the voiceover. I mean, definitely something is present. And that's not just the person on screen, but something metaphorical or even just figuratively inside. And then looking at our last aria, that's kind of also a struggle of what we're dealing with today as we're dealing with environmental issues and what that could lead to. 
as we're experiencing, or mostly Claire, you're experiencing being out west with um, the wildfires um, of, you know, going going towards the last quarter um, of the year. And with, you wanted rivers. That one's an interesting one in my head just because, I mean, obviously they're trying to find something. Whether they found it or not, it kind of leaves you questioning still at the very end. And I think struggle is something that everyone is trying to find and why probably Burning Man exists in one way because, you know, you got to let that let that shed in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, I think that all three films really address existential questions that I think collectively we all have. And I think that the desert environment really, I mean, it, it certainly puts the body to a test where it really amplifies those questions and amplifies the struggle for answers for those questions as well. Well, let's start diving into Clouded then. We've already sort of mentioned that there's this, you know, obviously a drone involved and excellent coverage of the landscape, but also the choreography and the view of the shadows dancing as well as the dancers. Some really beautiful imagery there. For that one, I actually just want to give a shout out to Nathan Kim, who is a fantastic uh, cinematographer and whose camera work has been seen certainly a lot at San Francisco Dance Film Festival, but at many film festivals. And he's also a dancer himself. So he is seriously like a single person campaign for why dancers should be cinematographers. Great crowd of folks that we have here, which is another reason why we picked these films. I mean, going in, back into Clouded, I really love how the satisfying, euphoric feeling while watching that film, especially as the music builds or everything, just how everything unfolds. Another thing when we think about deserts is aliens. And I find it very interesting that in this sense, the dancers... Minus, I would say, I would call her the talent, um, our main figure that is not wearing all black. I view the dancers as like this one like thing, you know, because of how they're moving against the landscape. It's a little bit more intricate and technical and linear against the landscape, especially when we get to those drone shots that are, I mean, I think this whole film is probably shot on a drone, honestly, but when you get very high up, their bodies being extended from the sun with their shadows, it kind of definitely changes them into more than just dancers, but just these beings that are existing. So I was thinking of like Area 51 and why you're in the middle of nowhere and why you're kind of being presented with this organism of people or organism of beings on a landscape. I love that. I bet that the voice, like the kind of creepy effect on the voice probably adds to that sci-fi feel with that film. I'm very proud that we screened Clouded in both DC and in Vancouver. And it's one that audiences always brought up afterwards. And sometimes they had questions like, I don't understand the story, but I want to. And sometimes they had theories. And one theory that actually came from a teenage audience member was that the you know, as you said, Hannah, like this organism or this existence, like they represented the ink that was being dropped on her face. And this whole film, like, is really constructed so beautifully as 
But rather than just going into the desert and having this reflective experience, you actually get the satisfaction at the end of, it feels like a baptism almost, like this film, even though it's not clean water being used. (laughs) Also, you know, if we were to say they were aliens, in a sense, it's kind of like this, uh, we're not the only ones here existing on this rock. You know, and that's also another question that a lot of people experience, you know, and you have to think about, um, I, I kind of think about this sometimes myself of just like, are we the only ones here? And I mean, obviously, I believe, of course not. But, you know, it is it is a um, a question of existence. The one line in the narrative is actually something is near you are here. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's totally the lingering feeling you have watching this. There is this sense of power that even this single person in a desolate place, really even, you know, physically, maybe they're not close to society. They really truly aren't alone in this case. Like there really is something watching out and something looking over. And something that I really love about this film is the engagement with the sound score. And um, actually, if you take a look at the credits, the sound score is actually, they're seem to be different studies on this LCD sound system song that plays at the end. So, and I really love how this, the score creates that experience where at the beginning, it really does feel very sparse and very arid and very, very dry. Whereas at the end, you really get that sense of exaltation and you almost, it almost feels like a, a wave, a wave rush. Like the song, um, I'm not always partial to bringing songs into dance films and specifically whole already existing, already in rotation songs. But here I felt that that was done exceptionally well. And I thought that that transition into the song itself was done very, very well. Yeah, it wouldn't have been the same film if it was just essentially a concept video start to finish with the song as it is. It really, you know, the fact that the, that Will choreographed, directed, edited, wrote the lyrics, did the voiceover, this really feels like such a personal work that's so cohesive at the same time. And I think that's why it's such a popular film and people of all ages seem to love it and dancers and non-dancers. This is one that definitely stands out. And I, you know, absolutely get it. (laughs) It's not one of those situations where it's like, I just don't get it. I absolutely get it with this film. And the setting is seemingly sparse, but there's also just so much going on with the cracks in it. And even um, in the very, very distance, you can see sort of like some residential areas of the Inland Empire. But it really does show that deserts are a godsend when it comes to mise-en-scene. And you really can make that into whatever you want. You You can make that location into whatever you want it to be. Well, going elsewhere into California, into another desert, Claire was able to speak with Scotty Hardwig about his film, Our Last Aria. So here is that interview. Scotty Hardwig, thank you so much for joining us on Frameform today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to be here. Our Last Aria is um, a very striking film that I first encountered a few years back, but I found that in the years since it's um, only become more resonant in the wake of the world changing and especially in the wake of um, human inflicted world changes over the course of the last year. But let's actually start from the very beginning. What was the spark for this film? Uh, It actually was a very specific image when I was... um 
at the time living in Oakland, California. Uh, and I was dancing with a company called Axis Dance Company. And one of the things that that company does is we would go around and do uh, basically workshops in different K through 12 school districts. Um, and on that particular day, it was during the summer, a summer in June. Um, and there was a particularly bad, one of the first particularly bad fire seasons in California. And so the entirety of Oakland and um, the Berkeley area was sort of enwreathed in a in a, 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 a cloud of smoke. Basically, it was all blowing in from the from Northern California. And I was going to do a uh, one of these workshops, these school workshops with access um, in Berkeley. And I was walking through the streets of um, of Oakland and then Berkeley, and it was all empty because people weren't outside. Um, and as I was approaching the school district, I saw just this kind of um, empty street. I remember this image so clearly. There was cars parked on the side, and then in the center of the street was a, a child, maybe about eight or nine, riding an old-fashioned French bicycle, wearing a gas mask, um, a full uh, gas mask and then normal school clothes, a school uniform. It was like something out of The Walking Dead. I mean, it was totally the, an image of the apocalypse. And I, I had been thinking a lot about the um, the fires and the the just the image of of flame. And I thought, you know, this is this is really how the world ends, not in a big bang. Although we still have time for that, don't get me wrong. Um, but rather in a slow, uh, choking death. I mean, it was a very powerful moment. It was very, a very sad and intense um, time in, in my life. And it's un unfortunately, as you say, it's only gotten worse um, since then. And so I was working with uh, two incredible dancers at the time, Keanu Forrest Brady, who's been uh, collaborating with me for many, many years, and James uh, Mario Bowen, who I was dancing with in Axis at the time. And we got together and we said, you know, why don't we, why don't we create a, a film? And so um, with my husband, Michael, and those two dancers, we got into a car and we went down to Death Valley, California. Um, and we filmed near the Eureka Dunes, which is actually a, an incredibly stunning and remote part of uh, the Death Valley landscape. And we so we did that after that summer. We prepared for a couple months, and then we went down there in the winter, which is just about the only time you can film in Death Valley and not and not die. Um, so so that was pretty much the inception of the imagery of the piece, and then we adapted a bunch of movement materials that Keanu and I had been working on. Uh, for a little while to to that desert landscape, so we just sort of adapted all the choreography to um, to that particular location, and that's how it started. I mean, I'm in the Bay Area right now, and I'd say fire season's already been going on for a few months, but yesterday was the first day of like a smoke cloud cover. So it's the kind of thing that maybe maybe 2017 was like, oh my god, what's happening? But now, like, it's very much like, okay, it's just this season again. It's a part of life. And and one of the other things I was thinking of is this this whole idea that's almost become a meme of spaceship Earth. Just the idea that we're all aboard this um, incredibly vast and complex spaceship. Uh, and imagining ourselves not as the stewards of this planet, but as part of it. Um, mm -hmm. or, or in the case of Our Last Aria, perhaps, as uh, beings who are somewhat alien to the to to our own spaceship and how that disconnect has sort of um 
existentially grown, uh, particularly through the 20th century and now into the 21st century, thinking about what that means, um, what that means for our species, what that means for us as artists. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, like I, I, as an artist, because I have this kind of quote unquote fine arts training, I think about everything in, in, I think about everything in terms of images and compositional terms. Like I'm a total, in, in, in my film work as well, like I'm a total compositional nerd. I'm thinking about the structure of the edit. I'm thinking about the relationship between image and sound. I'm thinking about how the bodies are painting across the frame. Um, and so I, I'm actually not really working from a conceptual place of like this, X means Y. Um, but it's interesting to hear, uh, how all of, uh, there's, there's so many meanings that come out through that film in particular, um, that people get from it that, that I think was there in the inception, but wasn't necessarily what I intended. Um, but it's all there, right? Like allowing for it all to be there in this, mm -hmm. in this poetically abstract way is, um, is part of my interest as an experimental filmmaker and dance maker. Right. And something I really enjoy about the film and something that really shows how screen choreography really manifests is the movement of the location. Like we see uh, Keanu and James moving um, and developing the material on those dunes, but we also see the movement of the wind and even like the movement starting, just starting to cover up those tracks. And like, even though there's been activity, it's like there's nothing there at the, at the end of it. But um, understandably, and again, especially as someone from the Bay Area who occasionally visits the desert, um, that is not a short trek. <laughs> uh, that is not an easy trek. So how, how often did you visit the location before you started filming? We actually did not visit the location before we started filming. We scouted for it. My husband's a geographer. So I, when I go out and I do these, um, these shoots, sometimes it's not financially feasible to actually go down and do a scout. I love doing scouting trips. Um, but a lot of times uh, you can't do it just because of time constraints. So what we did is, is, um, my partner Mike and I sat down and we looked at a variety of locations. We took into account weather. Um, we had to do it in December. There was no other month that we could do it. And so we were thinking, okay, like, where can we film this? Um, and so really what we did is we, we went down there, um, on, on a Monday in December, we spent about a day scouting and working on site. And then we spent, uh, two and a half days filming. Um, so that was our calendar. It was a very tight calendar. Um, because I think, well, there's this rule in screen dance. Uh, I forget who I, who I learned this from, but you need about 10 minutes of, of raw footage to get a minute of screen dance. And mm -hmm. I, I found in the editing process, that's very true. Um, but yeah, no, we didn't scout the location. And speaking of what you were talking about with the, what's really fascinating about what happened on that shoot is that we had to deal with dust storms. So we had um, several very large and powerful wind storms that swept through that valley, um, making it extremely hard to film. It was actually a little bit dangerous at times um, because there were, there were these wind gusts that would pick up sand and dust and just blow it all over our tents and our cameras and our equipment. Um, luckily the dancers were wearing, were wearing respirators, you know? So I think it was a, it was a little easier on them than it was on Mike and I who were on um, a cam and B cam respectively. But uh, it was, yeah, it was a very intense experience and the earth was literally moving around us and as you say there there was a lot of metaphor within that of like the 
the traces that the dancers were leaving behind were then getting swept away um, almost in the span of like 30 minutes that all of our footprints were gone. And so there was a, just an added layer of um, a sense of existentialism. It just in the shoot and, and the weather. And I always, whenever I, doesn't matter what the landscape is. I mean, deserts are particularly special um, in that sense, in terms of like the extremity of, of what you're, what you're up against as a body. Um, but where, whenever I'm filming on location, like I'm always interested in the, in, in the magic that's already there. Um, you know, every space has a different quality and a texture to it. Forests feel very different than deserts. Deserts feel very different than the coast um, and the ocean. And so there's, there's a kind of an old magic that I really like to like, I like to let it be revealed rather than, um, rather than necessarily construct it. And so in that sense, it was fine that we didn't scout. <laughs> we just kind of <laughs> let it happen. And that's the process of improvisation um, within the, the filming process and within the choreographic process uh, that I always work with when I'm in a site-specific location. Even though you had a very, um, as you mentioned, even though you had a very constrained time on location, um, and even though you were visiting, again, maybe the month to visit, the desert still poses a lot of dangers, both to um, you as the cameras, but also uh, to the dancers. Uh, what advice do you have for anyone who wants to film in a location like this? And what is something that surprised you about filming in a location like this that you hadn't anticipated? Yeah, totally. I mean, as I said before, deserts are special. They're um, simultaneously a kind of a blank canvas, but at the same time, what's always surprising to me about deserts is how much life there is there. Um, so like we, when we went to the Eureka Dunes, for example, there's a particular kind of dune grass that only grows there. It's the only place in the world that you'll find that particular species. And we also saw several desert mice that are like fascinating little creatures um, that I had never seen before, but they have really long legs, like a kangaroo. In fact, I think they're called kangaroo mice. Um, and they would kind of wander around our campsite and they were very cute to like watch hop around, um, reptile life, snakes. So what on the surface of, appears to be barren and almost Martian in its, um, in its texture is actually full of, of life. Now it's different than doing work in, in like a, a, a jungle or a rainforest, for example, it's a very different scale of biodiversity. Um, but there's always, there's always life there. And so that, that is always surprising to me and just kind of recognizing, um, that it's all a part of the interconnected system of, of biomes on this planet, which is, uh, just remarkable and always inspiring to me as an artist. On the other hand, um, especially in really remote locations, um, like where we were, there's a certain appeal to it, um, because it is really a, a wilderness. And one of the reasons that I'm drawn to those kinds of places is that there actually are very few wilderness spaces left on earth. Um, and, and that is only increasing, unfortunately. The, the idea that you can go somewhere and not encounter another human for days at a time is, um, is both inspiring, but also really tricky. And so when you, when you go to, uh, film in those kinds of places, you have to prepare really, really well. And luckily, um, my, my husband and I are both, um, very experienced 
in things like mountaineering and backpacking and trekking. Um, and so it, Mike especially is really good at preparation. So like things like bringing enough water, bringing enough food, making sure you have a, a way to cook for yourself, planning for more days than you're actually going to be there is actually, is crucial, especially if you're in a wilderness location, because actually that happened to us. Our, the, car, the battery on our car died um, two days into the shoot and there was nobody around nobody around. Um, luckily, um, a guy, an ex-military guy showed up about the end of the second day. Um, and he had, he was like one of these people that goes out to the desert and is prepped. He had like boxes all over the back of his truck. Um, you know, an, an American flag flying out the back. And he was like very gruff and, and sort of, you know, um, it's like desert dude. Um, and so he jumped our, he, he jumped our car. And so that was, um, that was very helpful. Um, we would have been in a real pickle uh, if not for him. So, so extra, extra active preparation is really important. Um, making sure that your equipment has some kind of barrier, that you have got waterproof bags, that you've got, um, you know, all, all the things you need to protect both the people and the equipment. First aid kits, like more than enough first aid supplies in case somebody gets a cut. Um, you know, really like basic survival things are, are for that uh, very important. Now it depends if you're going somewhere that's like within a stone's throw of a, of a settlement of a human settlement, then, then you don't maybe necessarily have to plan or prepare quite so much. But for most of my shoots, like we go out and we're, we're camped out there. We're not, um, in range of, of really any help most of the time. Um, and so that's, I think that's what I would recommend. Like really good logistical planning is, is pretty crucial. Absolutely. And with regard to the dancers and as far as have making sure that they have a space to, I guess, get in their body safely in an environment that's really not hospitable to that. Was there something that you had to negotiate with that? Yeah. I mean, you, usually there is, but, um, sand is really forgiving. So, um, the one great thing about working on sand is that, um, especially if it's clean sand and there's not a lot of like, you're not on a beach where there's a bunch of glass or something like that. Um, which I will say, any kind of highly trafficked area like that, you you want to be really careful about space, space prep. If people are in bare feet, like you have to just be very careful about what's in the sand. But usually if you're in the middle of a desert, um, you can just be out there and be moving. And normally what we would do is we would warm up with the materials that we were going to film. And so we would use that as part of our warm up. So we would, we would go through it once, sort of light, um, get a little bit into the body, and then we would film it. And then we would do another set of filming for that particular scene to um to kind of lock it in and then we ended up with all this great b-roll from that too so we ended up with uh, lots of materials and it was also a great opportunity for the dancers to get in the body um and we ended up with a lot of that kind of material we had like some exercises that we did with partnering um just out in the space in the morning after breakfast. And it was, it was like this kind of ritual for like getting ready for the piece. But then we also filmed it. So um, you kind of get the best of both worlds. And I have like, I think like three or four hours of just footage where we were, were warming up. And a lot of it's be beautiful stuff. It didn't make it into the final piece, but it's just like beautiful footage um, and, and photographs and all kinds of process-oriented uh, materials. As I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, the film really ha holds 
a, I mean, upon repeated viewings of the film, each time I see something new and a different part of it resonates with me. And I'm very interested if, A, have you rewatched the film recently? And B, um, have you, has anything new emerged for you or anything um, new sparked for you? I um, have watched parts of it recently, um, mostly at screenings. And one of the things that it has sparked for me recently is that I'm about to embark on another film series uh, called Mother's Lands with uh, a, a group of artists from different parts of the world. So the idea is that it'll be a series of three films um, working with um, female dancers in their in their what you would call their native lands, the lands they were born in. Yeah, Mother's Lands is a is a three part um, screen dance series that um, each of them is going to contain elements of magical realism. Um, so local, old or imagined mythologies that are specific to each of the spaces that I'm working with. And so it's it's at its core, it's about creating a choreographic film series where movement artists are relating to the non-human world and cultural imaginations of their native landscapes along the axis of time and myth. Um, and so the first one will be with Claudia in Oaxaca. Uh, the second one will be with Eva Maria in Finland. And the third one, I'm, I'm not sure yet. Um, so I'll be working on this probably for the next uh, two and a half, three years. Um, in, in, in a variety of locations internationally. And I, I sort of think of Our Last Aria as the, as the first in that series, mainly because it, it works in a similar way. Like there's, there's this kind of element of magical realism. There's, there's an element of mythology in there, but it's subtle. Um, and so what I'm hoping to do with this next series is to really like bring that um, more decidedly or more markedly into the filmmaking, into the choreography. Um, I'm at a really blessed point in my life where I have access to more, more money. Um, you know, and like our last aria, we had a budget of zero. Like we did, we didn't have any money for that project. Um, but it was, it was a, it was a passion thing for, for those of us who were making it. And so, and we, and we, we, we made it happen. Um, but luckily I have like now, funding for travel and and costumes and other kinds of post-production stuff that are going to be uh really helpful um so that so that that's that'll be great and it's also a collaboration with different choreographers so i won't necessarily be creating the movement material but i'll be directing the cinematographic elements which i think will be really helpful for me because it's a lot to be choreographer and sound designer and editor and director and cinematographer um it, it, it's a lot. So, so being able to like kind of work in a, in this collaborative way with a network of artists internationally, like feels really right to me. And it feels really relevant um, in this moment when I think a lot of artists are asking this question of like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Um, and for me, and for me working within this, this network that crosses boundaries and borders and philosophical traditions and aesthetic traditions, mm-hmm. um, feels really, really exciting because the, the aesthetics of both landscape and people in Northern Finland, for example, in Scandinavia is very different from the traditions and aesthetics of uh, people in Mexico. Um, right. Yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing that. Thank you so much, Scotty, for joining us on the podcast today. You're very welcome. It's great to be here. Mm-hmm. 
I'm so glad that you got to talk to Scotty about our last aria. I mean, this, as an editor myself, I really loved how Scotty really manipulated this this piece in general and just created it into something that is just so one it's really stunning to look at just because of the location but I just love how intricate and dynamic and complicated the edit is with what this whole thing is about I mean looking at our list Aria and seeing how there is also this sci-fi aesthetic that is going on, like how clouded it is. You definitely see that, I mean, not just by literally looking at the respirators that they're wearing on their faces, but also just that whole idea of playing with the radio sound-wise and just like playing, also interacting with the sand and just everything turning to dust. Of, um, I, I definitely seeing what his artistic narrative is in this story absolutely i know it's a deceptively simple film like it's or deceptively simple setup where we really just have two dancers in gas masks on these hills but there's so many layers to it and so many layers like not only in the sound score but also with even though the gas masks do make the dancers look almost alien they're not that far away from what reality is. And I mean, certainly speaking as a Californian, what reality has been in California for the last four years or so has been fire season. And really this feeling of disintegration, like really waking up with ash on your car, waking up, you know, just getting your N95 filters. Like we were on the N95s before 2020 was, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, and what a beautiful thing that someone can take an experience like that that is uncomfortable and its own existential threat and kind of process it collectively by making some beautiful art out of it. You know, and this is obviously more than just beautiful art, but I do appreciate that this isn't just, oh, we went out to a a photogenic area and shot some cool dancing. And I don't think any of the films today are that. And I think that, you know, the desert is so much more difficult to actually pull off a production there that it probably deters a lot of more, I wouldn't say like more amateur filmmakers. I would just say people that like are not willing to (laughs) to go through all of the effort and like do a big scale production like that. Yeah. And it does feel feel like, at least from a screening perspective, that there are a lot of flyby desert shoots where people like just drive to Joshua Tree for a day or like, you know, drive to the the lowest place in the U.S. in Death Valley for a day and just do something on the fly. But there really was this sense of immersion in our last aria. And it also just brought something to mind just as someone who sometimes drives through the deserts of California is that you see a lot of really weird crap in the desert. Yeah. Like, and specifically, like, a lot of, like, man-made weird crap. If you actually drive in the Mojave Desert, like, there's this whole— there, it's basically, like, a plane, like, a, a 747 graveyard. Like, you're, there are a whole bunch of commercial airlines from, like, lots of different— um, lots of different airlines, lots of different countries. Like, there's a Ryan airplane there somewhere. And it also— a mean that, you know, the desert is also a place where, like, a lot of bomb testing happened. And there's a lot of 
obviously there's the UFO thing, but it's sort of been this almost like a human trash dump for a long time. Like that's kind of the place where people brushed their excess aside or whatever they don't want to see aside. But this film really is a reminder that that is really something that we're inevitably going to have to face. We're going to have to face this consequence. Yeah, it's funny to think how being on the East Coast and also growing up on the East Coast, how the desert was something I've never even visited until my 20s. And it is a very strange relationship at first of experience. And I think this film, if it were to be shown to someone that's never been to the desert, like, I don't think they would grapple it in that way. I mean, it definitely has, I would say maybe this film kind of grapples with the idea of like what Mad Max is trying to give and deliver to audiences about how we're just kind of maybe not at a car war, but you know, we're all just like trying to make it somehow and survive. But I find this work and exploration and desert to be, um, not just cleansing, but just kind of more, it's more just a question, just trying to be not answered, but just more investigative. Kind of like what Nomadland was about, you know, you're just kind of like exploring and learning these new things, but the nothing is really answered in the end. There's no right answer. There's no answer at all. It's just kind of like you're floating through it. And I feel that's what the desert kind of gives to us as um, Americans or even in other locations around the world. Well, from a practical perspective, being able to shoot a dance film and make something in the desert allows you to actually create that thing and make it a pleasant viewing experience. Because I don't think as many people as saw these films we're talking about, I don't think all those people would have been able to or willing to go and sit down in the desert and try and watch a lot a site-specific performance. I think that most people would probably draw the line before that. Oh, and I, I also, I mean, that kind of just made me think of, uh, like, Breaking Bad, that kind of experience of watching the desert. I mean, that's, like, a whole other notion of also just, like, understanding location in general, you know? Like, yeah, talk about a television show with, that makes you actually feel what the desert is like. Though I do want to say, like, desert places can be refuges for art at times. Um, I mean, Joshua Tree, I think, is the easy example of that. But there are so many fantastic desert communities where people really do have a sense of detachment from place. Or not necessarily from place, but really have a detachment from society as a whole and really can incubate some really, really weird stuff. And I mean, Georgia not O'Keefe. stuff. <laughs> Really, really, uh, yeah, really, really compelling stuff. (laughs) Well, and I think that's part of the fascination with shooting not just dance films, but shooting films in these remote locations. I just watched, I was just in uh, Colorado, and I'd never been, even though I'm Canadian, I'd never been to the Rocky Mountains, and I was in love with it. And then I watched a Robin Wright movie on the way home called Land, where she goes to Wyoming and, like, almost dies um, (laughs) a few times. And it really, I think that all these films, like the, you know, part of why I love this location scouting series is that we get to really focus on 
the practical, the creative, and the symbolic meaning behind these different locations and what they reveal to us. And I think definitely by doing this episode, I much bigger fan of desert films than I thought I was because I certainly started to take them for granted and Clouded and Our Last Aria came it came out within a year of each other. And I remember screening both of them that year. And I think that was my quota for desert films. <laughs> I was like, well, Vortices came out that year too. Okay, so I did screen Vortices as well. And I think that they were maybe spread out over two years between the three of them. But it was it was tough because there's so many good ones. And then uh, as Claire actually mentioned earlier today, we, there's different kinds of deserts too. Like a tundra can be a desert, but we're really talking about these, you know, arid, hot, dry deserts. And the last two were in California, but our next one is actually in the country of Jordan. I think this is the first film that I've seen that was ever shot in Jordan, even though the production crew is and the director and dancers are all from Poland. Um, the location is still. Um, something that's very foreign to me and something I'd never seen before. What did you both think of You Wanted Rivers? I know that I've only seen this in one festival so far, like actually play, and now I'm seeing it pop up everywhere because, of course, it's amazing. I mean, I think it's a great example of how a location can be used to really heighten what the stakes are and specifically what the stakes in this relationship are. And You Wanted Rivers, that's, I mean, the title really doesn't, you know, emerge or doesn't reveal itself until the end. And it really, I read it as sort of like this constant quest for like satisfaction. This is constant quest for, as you know, Hannah has mentioned earlier, like this sort of like this desire that can't be fulfilled. And even when it seemingly is, that's not enough. And you're going to go through whatever in order to try to get there. It's so intense. I love it. I thought it was really fascinating. I mean, looking at, like, Clouded, for instance, I mean, the movement and the camera work is very technical. I mean, the drone, it's, like, literally floating. So satisfaction. <laughs> like, I, I just get so much satisfaction watching the camera work on that one. Where this one, yeah, as you say, Jen, talking about, like, like, feeling chaos and struggle and having not enough I mean the camera work there is exactly what the dancers are feeling in this work I mean we get a little bit of that with our last aria I mean being Scotty working obviously that close-up camera with the movement you can tell like he's having dancing with them where this instance is more like the camera is trying to catch up with the dancers you know they're he slipping through the rocks and gravel with them oh my gosh the rock section <laughs> that I think that is the point in the film where I was like oh no this is so good because the, the way the edit is done where they're struggling against the rocks rolling down the hill and then it cuts to like his head pushing on her body and the like the resistance is just edited so well also and I think that is something that unifies these three films is just like the detail like, not just the fact that they got these amazing visuals, but they got such great, like, movement material, such good coverage of different things in the environment, whether it's a lot of the sky or the horizon or the foothills or, the like, the, the stones in the ground or the, the sand moving over the surface. It's not just, like, this monolithic 
backdrop. They're really engaging with the space and with the environment. And then, of course, the way that sound adds to it. And obviously this film, not using like North American popular music, it it feels just like such a journey on its own. I'm such a huge fan. Absolutely. And something about this film that differs from the other two is really how it sprinkles in sort of signs of hum- the human-built environment or sort of signs that of society. And again, like almost like these little sprinkles, like these really tantalizing little sprinkles suggesting that there is something around the corner, but you're just going to have to go that much further. Like we see that um, that bus stop that has the, the graffiti. We have We see the windmills. We see we see streetlights as well, um, but we don't see anyone else around. I know. I, I, I just have this feeling of a mirage throughout the entire film. Like you see something in the distance, but you can't quite get there. It's totally that. And then emotionally, it that ties in as well, like the, the tension between, I mean, what a strong performance from both of these dancers. Okay, I haven't seen Marriage Story yet because I just feel like it's going to upset me. Um, but I feel like it's almost a dance film version of that kind of movie or that kind of scene where you're like, watch or like Blue Valentine, where it's just so emotionally raw and they're arguing and you're like, oh my gosh. And it's just so gripping. This is like a poetic dance version of that. And it's just structured really well with the everything about it. And the fact that they get to shift to these different environments does give you the variety. I, I find like, when I first click on a film, I can't help but look at the runtime. I can't help but think about the pacing. And this just keeps moving in such a great way that I don't think you even have time to check out. It, the entire time is just, in, you're enthralled. Let's talk about whatever, I, I mean, the link is in the show notes, so I'm, I'm going to spoil it. Let's talk about the, the water coming in. Because that is one thing that we do not see at all in these three films. We have no existence view of water. Now, in this sense, as we've been saying, uh, you wanted rivers. There are no rivers. They're in the desert. But we hear water. And then we kind of see it. You know, they're in the dark. And they seem to be drenched. And we are hearing nothing but um, almost like a similar representation of their movement through the sound of drumming water, which is a very, um, I'm very curious how um, that track was recorded because it's just a totally uh, different kind of sound ever. But um, what are your thoughts about that sound of the drumming water leading up to this isn't enough after that title card. I mean, that, again, like that whole scene really has the feeling of a mirage as well. And I might have to rewatch the film again, but we don't actually see like a body of water. Like we don't actually see how that dancer is seemingly wetting her hair. I mean, who knows what what's actually, like what kind of substance is actually on there. Like, I think that it's one of those like a false ending in a way, or like a false pause for this relationship in that there was a suggestion of something that they were looking for. Like the sort of like this, the vaguest of hints of something that they were looking for. But that's not enough to satisfy. Some kind of development. Yeah, yeah. And 
it, and you just have to wonder, like, have they actually found something along the lines of this? Is this just something that is, is this something that's just manufactured? Like how, um, and then that title card coming after that is, is just brilliant. And I think it just shows that even though maybe you get a taste of something, it's not quite enough to, to sustain or really not quite enough to sustain whatever the bond between them is. I think that part also with the music, I mean, it is nighttime. It's like this beautiful pink sunset. I mean, that's the point where, I don't know, at the end of the day, you're kind of throwing in the towel. You're done. You know, whether that's an argument, whether that is the end of a work day, whether that's the end of a hike, wherever you're hiking, you know, that's that moment where you're just kind of, you're tired. You're probably seeing things at that point. You're square-eyed. And um, I just find that so interesting that it's like the most beautiful moment that it's a figment of imagination. Because that's what happens. You're like, at the end of the day, you're so out of it. Whatever you're doing, the next day just continues on. It's that hamster wheel that, I don't know, I'm definitely feeling lately. <laughs> well, do you think that that would work in another location? Because all three of these films specifically work where they were filmed. I don't think you could really plop them down anywhere else. And, you know, certainly Our Last Aria is specific to that region. Even even to loosely interpret them and put them somewhere else, would they still be great? Yeah. But I feel like I'm imagining the only way that you could kind of put it in another environment was to do some kind of other vast wilderness or, you know, a snow desert. Or if with water, something where they're like so overwhelmed and like drowning, which is a lot more difficult to film, even more difficult to film than being in a dry desert with a full crew. I think Clouded would be very interesting if it were in like a small, like shallow thing of water, like like thinking of like a sound. Like the salt flats? Or no, not the salt flats, because that's still considered like a desert of some sort. But like the sound like down in like specifically, I'm thinking of like North Carolina, um, the Pimlico Sound, where it's very shallow, but yet you still have that openness. And it would just be really interesting to see how... Uh, water is kicked around with the that linearness. They would still be able to do like some floor work, but just think of that like it would be maybe like if when they're sitting in that one line, the water would be probably like their knees will st- would be sticking out of the water. So I think that would be really interesting. I think it could work. I mean, it's still a vast location but just think of that extra element of water filling them i love that idea it's been it's been too long since i lived close to the beach but as soon as you started describing it i was like oh yeah like low tide that would look amazing on low tide and you still get sand you still get some sand yeah you probably would have more of an issue with continuity between shots because at least in the desert it's like erasing your tracks every time but getting that drone shot on a beach, you'd probably be like, okay, you need to get it right because we're going to see your feet after this. Yeah. Yeah. They would have to be deeper into the water to, like, 
I wouldn't say like the ocean, but like just something that's a little bit more steady, like almost like a lake, almost like a spit, like a delta, mm. like a peninsula. Peninsula, yes. <laughs> hey, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> well, I would have to say that based on our conversation for today, that we are not tired of this landscape. Mm-mm. Yeah, well, I mean, good thing we're not tired of this landscape because for a lot of people, this is going to be the landscape that they're going to see in the very near future. Well, this is also a pandemic-friendly location to think of it as well. True that. I think if you were to make a desert film, just don't use it as a backdrop. Like, really put some thought into it. And yeah, sure, put it, throw in a drone in there. I think it works. I... Really enjoy seeing bird's eye and playing with shadows um, in a space. I think you do need to think about it before you just go ahead to drive down to Joshua Tree to make a movie. Yep. And don't solely rely on the environment as well. Because even if you get a lot of great shots of dancing and a cool environment... If there's no, you don't need a literal narrative, but if there's no structure to the edit, if there's no arc or any kind of way for people to follow anything or derive any sort of meaning except this looks really cool, your film will not get seen by as many people. And the great thing about desert films is there are so many great examples. We only dissected three today, but there are so many, and we're going to link a few more in the show notes as well. And I would say, like, one last tip for, for that these films did really well is the sound. Like, calling attention to the detail, as much detail to your sound mix and the elements you're putting in there as you do to the visuals. Because it is an audiovisual medium. I'm really sad that we are done all of our location scouting episodes for the season. Because this is probably one of my favorite series that we do within the show But just to brainstorm, what other locations do you two think we might talk about? And uh, maybe we can get some votes from our listeners. Or obviously, you can send us a DM or an email if you've got a suggestion as well. Or an amazing film set in a really cool landscape. Empty swimming pools. Swimming pools? Yeah. I think kind of like with water, how it was like, oh, wait, there are 17 different types of water locations. I don't even know where to start with like forest or with like, like green locations. I don't even know where to start there. Oh my goodness. Snow, frozen water. Yeah. There's Hannah, what would, what would be your vote? Um, I mean, I agree with Claire. I think empty swimming pools, um, just because there are so many of them. They are getting a little symbiotic, um, symbolic. Uh, that's where I am right now. All right. Well, sounds like we will probably do swimming pools next season. <laughs> and I think it would be super fun to do a vote again. Yes, I agreed. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Hannah and Claire. Thank you, Scotty, for coming on the show. We always love in- interviewing different people and having guests because while it's super fun for the three of us to talk about these topics, it's even better to connect with the wider community and feature some of the amazing minds and creators that are out there. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com. And engage with us on social at FrameformPod. That's FrameformPod. If you like what you're hearing, 
leave a review and rate the show. It really helps out. And if you know someone who also likes dance or film, join the conversation and bring your friends. Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Edited by the Frameform team. Mix and theme song by myself, Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.